Word for the Week is a podcast of Canaan Community Church, dedicated to the balance of Scripture for the wholeness of life. Learn more at CanaanCommunity.org. This is a chapter of doubt. It's John chapter 20 is the aftermath of the crucifixion just as much as it is the victory of the cross. It's a chapter of doubt, but in and out. A chapter of doubt, but in and out. The reality is everybody in there, oh man, we pick on poor old Thomas, doubting Thomas, right? But the truth is everybody in this chapter is doubting. It's just kind of a different story. As a matter of fact, there's four stories. Four stories, four journeys of doubt that are going on. Doubt in and out. And the truth is, is that everybody runs into doubt some point in their Christian walk. It's maybe uh, different versions and different ways under different circumstances, but something will put you to doubt. And there is nothing wrong with doubt. The best of us have doubted. It's what you do with the doubt. And so this is no surprise that in this aftermath of the cross that God gives us four stories that maybe we can identify with a little and maybe get some wisdom and resolve from them. So what are the four stories? Let's start with Mary Magdalene. Man, we got to love Mary, right? There it is, early in the morning, there she is. She's the first one there. And she's so faithful, isn't she? There's no question that Mary Magdalene had a special relationship going on with Christ. And you can't blame her. If, if you were saved from several demons, you know, you probably really have an attachment to that person as well. And so Mary shows up and, and you say, well, how's Mary's doubt? Well, the entry into her doubt is this. Expectation. See, when she went to the tomb, what do you think she expected to find? What do you think? A what? A dead body. And not just a dead body. She was going to go and see her dead faith. There was the object of her faith tied up in that body, and so she was going to take care of, really, the dead remains of her faith is what was going down there. And we can't blame her. It's logical, isn't it? She, I'm jealous now. (laughs) There's Mary. She saw what happened on the cross. She knew what went on there, She saw him die. Why wouldn't she expect to see a dead body when she goes there? But God has this way that human expectation falls to the wayside, doesn't it? God does things that we don't expect. And here's the thing with expectation. When we get wrapped up in our human expectation, it tends to affect our vision. What we perceive we're seeing what we expect to see. Ever done that? Expected to see something and, and something else happens? So you, uh, you, you know, like we say on the lake, the smart people on the lake, when a deer runs by, if you're not from the lake, what do you do? You watch, hey, look, there's a deer. 
But the people who live out here, they expect to see another one coming, so you look the other way. And at the tomb, it was the same thing going on. Mary was expecting to find a dead body in the tomb, and her eyes never come off of that. They never come off the idea or the perception that she is going there to see a dead God. Is basically what she was looking at, expecting to see. And so how does it unfold for her? Well, she was locked into this idea. It actually took three attempts to get Mary to see what was actually going on. God ever have to do that to you? That, you know, you so much expect him to be doing something, he's got to kind of like whack you up the side of the head three times and say, you know, Greg, Greg, and then finally go, oh, God's, God's bringing me somewhere I didn't expect. And that's what's happening with Mary. And it's so interesting because it's the same question, isn't it? She's there, these, these angels are there, and, they, and she's asked, why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? Well, because they took away the Lord. They, they took away my, my Lord. The, he's gone. It must be somebody else. I didn't expect him to get up on his own. And then Jesus asked her, Why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? And in her tear-filled eyes, she, she's still looking towards that tomb, and she's still expecting to find a dead body, so she just presumes it's the groundskeeper. And she says, If you took him away, just tell me where you put him. And... and there's something that happens here that changes everything. Let's talk about Mary coming out of doubt. What takes Mary out of doubt? One word. One word. Her, her name. Her name. Isn't that something? And it's put in there, it's, it's not just a coincidence that we're told how she is snapped into reality here. That really means something, doesn't it? If, if your reality can be changed by the way someone says your name. That speaks of relationship. Think of you guys. Think of when you were your parents. You were used to them calling your name. And you were so used to it, you knew your mom or your dad's uh, voice when he called. You knew it so well that by the tone you knew what was going on. One tone meant it was a good thing, and another tone meant it, it was a bad thing. For some of us, you know, it's just, you know, with our spouse, we can know the same thing. It's just the way they say your name. But you know them so well, you know when they're saying your name. There was a relationship going on. I wonder how many times Mary heard Jesus say her name. I wonder how many ways he might have said her name. One thing's for sure, though, it's that even in her grief, she knew the sound of God calling her name. She knew the sound of God calling her name that all it took was once and she snapped her back to reality. Man, how about us? How are you? How am I? Do you know the sound of God calling your name? Sure removes doubt. And an interesting thing with Mary's reaction, see, 
You look anywhere else, here's the challenge. I, I challenge you to look anywhere else in Scripture and see when Jesus makes a supernatural appearance that he doesn't have to say, hey dudes, <laughs> come down, be at peace, don't be afraid. Maybe that's a loose translation, but you get the idea. He has to tell people to be at peace, don't be afraid. But with Mary, this is the only time I know of that the opposite happens. Hey Mary, don't cling to me. Haven't yet ascended to my Father. That word to cling to him in the original language of, of, the, of the Greek in there, it means to fasten oneself to or adhere. What it makes me think, you ever say uh, something sticking to you like white on rice? You ever say that? Maybe that's just me because I eat a lot of rice. I don't know. But the idea that she was holding on to him and he's saying, you know, don't cling to me. I'm yet to ascend to my Father. Now the scholars have had quite a time with that line. And there's really kind of two thoughts on it. Is One is there's something, a spiritual dynamic going on we're not even aware of, of, of why this timing was important. But in the nuance of the language, there's a second thought too, is that he was saying, Mary, now isn't the time for hugging. You need to go. You need to go and do something. You need to go and tell others. And here's the result of this in and out of doubt for Mary. Mary does just that, doesn't she? She, she, she has a purpose now. It's to go and tell. Really clear cut, isn't it? Go and tell. And so she does that, and what she says is so simple, but so irrefutable. Her whole testimony is simply this. I have seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. One little sentence, and you can't argue with it. How can you argue with that? If someone were to come to you and, and say, you know, Canaan church doesn't exist, you would say, well, yeah, it does. I've seen it. I've been in there. You can't argue with an experience that someone has gone through. I have seen the Lord. Impossible to argue with that. Maybe the problem in the Christian community today, maybe a problem we have in the church community today, and it's not to turn all this into any type of negative or slam, but maybe a problem we have is that enough people have not seen the Lord. They have not experienced in a personal way, so what do they have to share, really? Question for you, can people really hear God calling their name today? Can you hear God calling your name today? Now, I'm getting an emphatic shake, a nod of the head from Pastor Chris. Chris, how do you know that? How do you know God is calling your name? Ah, you know the voice. It sounds like it takes relationship and experience to get there. I agree with Pastor Chris. I believe you can hear God calling your name. Your name. It happens in this way. It happens in life scenarios when you're just tuned in to what he's doing. It happens when you spend time in real prayer and reflection. And you're not just 
babbling at the Lord, but you're listening for what he'll say back. It happens in that prompting when you know God is, you get to know the still small voice and he says, hey, you should go do this. Hey, you, sh- you should go talk to that person. You-, you should give something to this person. You should do this or that. And you get to know it and the more you listen to that and the more you obey the prompts, the more you hear God calling your name. And we're like Mary, we might be in doubt, but it can take us right out of doubt. Second story is John, the other disciple, as we understand the gospel. And what's his travel into doubt? Well, for him, I'd say it revolved around fear and violation. Violation of his faith. Think of what was going on from the beginning of the chapter. It says, They were locked in a room out of what? Fear. Fear of all the the folks who were around them. They had a lot of enemies out there. And it just seemed smart to keep yourself locked up. But what brings them out of the room at this point is a sense of violation. Somebody took the body. And can you imagine if you were running to the tomb the list that would be going through your head. Who pulled this off? Was it Caiaphas? Was it some, one of the Pharisees? Was it the Romans? Somebody is not just simply trying to destroy our faith, they're trying to erase the fact it ever existed. Somebody took that body. Can we feel like that sometimes today? Do we ever feel like our faith is violated? We live in an age of uh, deconstructionism that uh, Scripture can be dismantled by some schools of thought. Even history is being rewritten in a lot of cases. Whole world views being erased from existence. Right or wrong on some of those views, but they simply are being erased from existence as if they never happened. Yeah, we can have this barrage of violation ourselves but question is do you think it affects the church that the faith is violated by things that are not the faith let me share a few claims this is just one report so i mean it's not gospel but this one report said 30 percent of evangelicals doubt the fact that jesus is god 20% of evangelicals are not sure that heaven is a real place. Three out of four Christians seldom, if ever, have had a spiritual conversation, quote-unquote, with another person. (laughs) But here's the interesting news. It said, yet 78% of the unchurched said they would listen if someone shared their faith. Wow, where is the disconnect happening? Violation. Now, I'm not sure how they defined evangelical or Christian in this, but one thing is for sure is that there is a faith being eroded to the very core in all of this. So what takes John out of his doubt? What takes him out of the doubt and the fear and the violation? Even though his perception of things that Um, He's not fully understanding them. There was something that happened that changed the way he saw things. 
In 20 we read this, He saw the linen clothes lying there, and the face cloth which had been on the, the, Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, that would be John there, and he saw and believed. There's the line. He saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must die, die and uh, raise from the dead. He saw and he believed. What did he see and believe? Well, once again, in that nuance of the Greek, I think we covered this before, and I think uh, in, in, the, in the Passion of the Christ, there's one thing Mel Gibson got right in there, is in the tomb, the way it's speaking is that these clothes, these grave clothes, like a balloon where the air comes, that they just collapsed on themselves. And it really is a, a striking image because even Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, what happened with him? Hey, Lazarus, come out. So here he comes out, hopping out and they have to unwrap him and there he is. It's a miracle. But nothing like this. It was if the body simply evaporated right out of the, clo the cloth, the grave clothes. Man, that's not a human thing. If somebody was going to rob a grave, they couldn't pull that one off. Something was going on here. And, and it says, actually, in the exact word-for-word -word translation uh, from the original Greek, says that John perceived and believes. I love this, because it's two tenses in the one sentence. He perceived, I saw, I, I, I gained an understanding. My mind's going back to what he said earlier. I see these grave clothes. I perceive what this must mean, and he believes continually from that point on. What an amazing thing that goes on at this point. What God does. What's the result? I can only imagine. Here we go, conjecture again. Everybody, they stole the Lord's body. Everybody's real downer. They're all moping about, and they're doing this. They go, John must have changed when he came out. All of a sudden, if the rest of them weren't there, there was John, who was no longer at, in this, this deep depression about things. He saw, he perceived, he believed. Something must have changed in what he was. He saw the whole thing in a new light. Maybe that's when your season, season of doubt comes from. Maybe it's, it's something we're not understanding. And then God does something... The Holy Spirit reminds you of it and you perceive what you didn't understand. You might not understand it all, but you understand that God did something and it has the power to save you from your very doubt. The number three story is the whole group of disciples. Now, and it's interesting, in the four stories we're given, this is the only one that's collective. And I think it's important we look at us collectively as believers. And, and in this, this story, this collective thing, there's a collective mindset that goes on. Isn't it true when you get a bunch of, of Christians together, a bunch of believers, we tend to take on a collective mindset. And we all know this because you may go to one church and you go, man, that was a dry, stale place. Collectively, whoever was in there was dry and stale. 
You go to another place and you can't keep them in their seats. They're, they're bouncing off the walls, you know, whatever. There's an excitement that's going on there. You go to another place and man, are they serious about their un- understanding and study of Scripture. And they're the Bereans just dividing the Word. And collectively, they all seem to hold the same mindset or a group that is compromised or a group that is throwing in the towel. It's just not worth it anymore. And that's the way this group started out. They were the more of the let's just doubt together group. Well, let's look at how they went into their doubt. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked when the disciples were in for fear of the Jews. Well, yeah, they're in Jerusalem. They're surrounded by the people of their own faith. And it was a real unsafe place because nobody believed the way they did. As a matter of fact, if they got caught, they were in fear that they would be killed. It was a siege mentality that was going on. Don't go outside these walls. And it was a natural thing. I wonder how we'd feel if we thought there were terrorists roam around, uh, roaming around the outside of our building or something. There would be a kind of a siege mentality. And the truth of it is, a lot of churches, we are in a siege mentality because our opinion isn't that popular out there. If we hold to the truth of Scripture, it can be a, quite an unsafe place out there. But these guys were literally in that situation. We can understand what they did. They did the obvious thing. They locked themselves in. Wouldn't you? People are trying to kill you. They had fear that those people might get in. So they locked themselves in. They feared what might happen if they reached out. So they kept themselves locked in. whole lot safer just to have a big old lockdown. Completely understandable. Not that much different today, is it? I mean, crazy folks out there. An uncontrolled, God-averse culture for the very large part. Maybe it would be safe for us just to stay locked in. Just lock ourselves in and go for sustainability. The thing is, God hasn't called us to a siege mentality. You won't find a siege mentality anywhere in Scripture. The command is to do what? Go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. Go to the ends of the earth even. We're called to go. So here they are in this siege mentality, which is not what Jesus has in mind. What takes them out of that doubt? One thing, just one thing that could do it and does do it. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Now verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them 
and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Some interesting words in here. The, the word glad is an understatement. It's the, the karyo in, in the Greek. It means to rejoice exceedingly. So in effect, they've gone from being paralyzed to party mode. That's basically what happened. There was a big old Jesus party going on when he showed up in that room. They were rejoicing exceedingly. And all it took was one thing. Jesus showed up. Jesus showed up. Isn't it amazing what happens in a group of people when Jesus shows up? When Jesus shows up, he follows a kind of a process too. The first thing he did when he came in this room, he, he gave his peace to them. And, and we know the word shalom is, is such a, a, a loaded word from the Hebrew. It's not just, uh, hey, calm down. It is a, a peace that passes understanding. Your soul becomes calm. It's that kind of a thing that is going on. So he gives his peace to this group. Hmm. There's an interesting thing to to consider as as a template to put in your mind, is that when Jesus shows up, there's peace in that group. There is shalom in that group. So the flip side must be true as well. When you find a church that is at war with itself, then Jesus must not be there. Seems as one or the other. So, there's peace. And then following the peace comes purpose. He says immediately, I am sending you. That's a purpose. Here's your marching orders. I am sending you. Open those locked doors you have. Yeah, the world's hostile out there, but guess what? You're going out there. That's what it's all about. But there's a third thing that follows. There is power. Now, it's debated whether it was symbolic or literal at this point because we have the whole second chapter of Acts thing yet to happen. But he breathes the Holy Spirit on them. There is power to do whatever he calls you to do. He's calling you, there's no question. And he has a purpose, there's no question. But whatever that is for you, and whatever it is for us collectively, God gives the power to do it. So what happens when Jesus shows up? There is peace, purpose, and power. There is peace, purpose, and power. That hasn't changed. So what's the result of this? He had sent them out. Boy, did they go out. Within 200 years, all the known world at the time had been touched by these. This time, there's no internet. There's not even highways And yet the whole world that is known at the time is touched by this word of Christ. That's the result that came out of this. Now we can go to the fourth story, the one everybody knows, poor old Thomas, never going to live it down. 2,000 years later, we're still, still talking bad about him sometime. But what was his journey into doubt? Well, it was absence. Simple as that. He wasn't there. He wasn't there. We're not given a reason. Who knows? Maybe he had gone down to the local Starbucks to get a kosher coffee. I don't know. 
Maybe he had an errand he was running. Maybe he was going off to grieve by himself. Don't know. All we need to know, and that's something important to know. Scripture's telling you something, is that reason doesn't matter. The thing that matters is said is that he wasn't there. That's what really matters. And so he missed something. Parallel is kind of painfully obvious in today, isn't it? There, there are so many ways not to be here. If physically we could not be here. You know, it's kind of an interesting thing. Another stat, as I, I read in the past, was you know that most people feel that if they make it to church believers, professing believers, if they make it to church once a month, just once a month to a Sunday service, they are regular attenders. That's a whole lot of not being there to be the norm, isn't it? To be the accepted norm. And it's not just that Sunday mornings are the, as a matter of fact, this is nothing but the starting line. This is, this is just where we all come together to launch into the other things that we do. But you can physically not be here. You can be not here mentally. You're sitting here thinking of whatever, the next game, the, what you're having for dinner, whatever. You can be here and not be here spiritually. You're, you know, all this stuff and you're hearing and all it is is, do you remember the old uh, Peanuts thing when the teacher was talking? Remember that? Wah, wah, wah. And that's what you're hearing and that's, that's it. And that's as much as it affects you. There's a lot of ways to not be here. But the result is all the same as you miss it. Whatever it is that God has going on for you, you end up missing it. You're just not there, no matter what the reason. What might happen? What word might you have heard? What conversation might you have had? What um, event might have taken place that would have changed everything if you had just been there? We've just got to be there. But Thomas comes out of his doubt, doesn't he? And it's interesting too. Here's another lesson for you. If you take it, you can look good and take a quick look at your sheet. Did uh, Thomas, did Jesus come immediately so Thomas wouldn't have doubt? Or was there a delay? <laughs> yeah, let's let's say because there's a delay. Yeah, eight days later it says he came. Eight days, more than a week. Why do you think that is? I mean, you know, he could have just showed up any time. I think he left Thomas to wrestle with what he was hearing, and maybe the sting of not being there. One thing's for sure, he was saying that, you know, unless I see what you guys experienced, unless I experience it and more, because not only does he want to see this return of Jesus, he wants to stick his finger in his side and see the nail prints in his hands. He wants all of this. Or he says he's not going to believe it at all. And honestly, there's a lesson in there for the church too. Who can blame him? Why should anyone believe what they have not personally experienced? And if we were to go out from this place and try and be a light in the world and tell them about something we have not personally experienced, why should they listen to us? 
man, that living relationship with the Christ is so important. The, the, the Christ who's willing to show up, the one we can experience. But now let's stop beating on poor old Thomas. Let's, let's take a look from it from the other side. So God does. He lets him wrestle with it for eight days, comes, gives him his empirical proof. And then we read this, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, it's, it's at least a mild reprimand, isn't it? Is it? He's saying, you know, that's great. You believe you see me, but there will be a special blessing on those who don't see me physically and yet believe. Why? Because we will see him from the inside not just from the outside. But to Thomas's defense, now here's something to learn from Thomas. At least when he is convinced, at least when, when he's turned the corner on what he believes, he says this. He answers, my Lord and my God. in Very quickly. As a matter of fact, do you notice how quickly all of them, once they do perceive, do this about face and buy in wholly. Thomas, my Lord and my God. That's two statements. Lord is one thing and God is another. God is the divine entity. Lord is effectively the boss of your life. The boss of my life and the divine God of everything. The purpose for these four stories were told why. Verse 31 says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. You're told all of this for the doubt in and out, for the proof of things. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, which is fine, that's wonderful that we believe, and by believing you may have life in his name. One thing, the Christian, the believer who is in a living relationship, a merry level relationship with this Jesus Christ, is you know something. Eternal life doesn't start when you die. Eternal life starts now. The effect that God has in us. There are two types of human beings walking around on the planet according to the gospel. There are living corpses and there are the eternal living. Those are the only two types of people that there are. You are told that you may have life in His name. And a life in His name means one that does not need to be crippled by doubt. God has a way to bring each of us in and out. But I looked at this in the four stories because you always, if you're really after that punchline, you look at them and you go, okay, what's the secret ingredient? What, what's common to all four stories? Because that's what God would really have us know, isn't it? That we might not be trapped by doubt. Well, it can't be that you physically saw him. You think that would do it, right? There was Jesus. I saw him. Duh, there he is. But no, that didn't do it. I mean, Judas followed him for three years and he fell away. The crowd fell away. Well, maybe it's if I could see miracles. 
They saw lots of miracles. Maybe if I could see miracles. But the truth of the, the matter is there were crowds who saw the miracles and they were amazed. And then they were on to the next big thing that was going on. When things got too hard, they strayed away. So seeing miracles isn't what's going to do it. What do they have in common? Well, there's two things they had in common, and, and they're non-negotiables. First is this. Every one of them had a living relationship with the Son of God. A living relationship, one that continued on. And the second thing was, even down to Thomas, eventually, they were there. They were there. Doubts eradicated when God shows up and you are there. Those things are a necessity for us. There's cert certainly this way of spiritual life. There's a way we can have this genuine encounter, but... You might think that, well, you know what? Back in 76, I had an encounter with Jesus, and I don't doubt it at all. And you think, well, well, there it is. That's enough. That'll hold you for the rest of your life. But it doesn't work that way. You can't just have one encounter and have eternal life. It's a continual thing. If we learn anything from these first disciples, it must be continual. That's the way God works. Kind of leaving us with a question as we go into communion, because, you know, we do communion all the time. And it can be just a ceremony, or it can be an encounter with the one who sacrificed himself for us are we open to that side of it? Are we open to an encounter? Second question I would ask is, is this. If there was an encounter, would you recognize it? Can you put together the spiritual dots when God is actually working? Is it possible that we could perceive and God would show up right now?